0: Welcome to Rougher Radio, a series of podcasts in which we explore the investment universe and share our interpretation of what's going on. In today's episode, I'm joined by Investment Director Duncan McInnes, who will give us a whistle-stop tour of everything that's been going on in markets over the past quarter. It's been an interesting one, Duncan, um, but very pleased to have you on today to, to give us a bit of an overview. Pleased to be here. Thanks. So, Duncan, by way of an overview, what did the major indexes do over the quarter and did anything perform well?
1: Uh, in a word, no. <laughs> Nothing performed well. And that's that's what's been so remarkable. U.S. stocks had their worst first six months uh, to a year in half a century. The U.S. S&P 500 was down 20%. The tech-focused NASDAQ was down 30%. For years, we've been hearing about uh, American exceptionalism, because they have all the best companies, but their markets were exceptionally bad so far this year. By contrast, the UK FTSE 100 is only down 1%, but that makes it the best market in the world. So they've struggled, but conventional multi-asset portfolios have struggled too. They're down anywhere between 10 and maybe even 20% for the year, or 8 to 10% for the quarter.
0: Ruffer portfolios uh, were also down a little bit over the quarter. And Duncan, without trying to be too antagonistic, um, I'm going to put a tricky question to you. Ruffer's raise on debt is to not lose money. And in fact, lots of people think, and it's something that has historically been true, that when markets fall, ruffer can actually make money on the other side. So this quarter's performance, what happened there?
1: So we lost a couple of percent this quarter. Um, The problem was that there was nowhere to hide, unlike the first quarter, uh, where uh, derivatives were were particularly helpful for the portfolio. That's our unconventional protective toolkit. Uh, The problem was that in, in Q2, those derivatives had become quite expensive after the volatility of the first three months of the year. So we couldn't have quite as much of them as we would like. And that's why we went into what we called crouch position, earlier uh, in in the year, and we reduced our overall risk. But in hindsight, we should have done more. We came into Q2 with a a balanced portfolio. But as the quarter progressed, we decided that events had led us to the point where a good outcome, the so-called soft landing, seemed less likely. And so uh, towards the end of the quarter, we reduced risky assets significantly. But we did that at slightly lower prices than if we'd done it a bit faster at the start.
0: And and you did touch on it a little bit just as you began speaking. But just to quantify for listeners, how big is the damage that we've seen across asset markets? I think it's getting to be pretty
1: remarkable. So to try and scale it, I think we're talking about perhaps 50 trillion, with a T, of wealth destruction across stocks, bonds, crypto and the more opaque assets like private equity and venture capital. And that is undoubtedly a big enough number that it will start to have ripples out into real-world behaviour, and the risks of things like forced liquidations start to come to the fore. Now, in terms of market action, we've been saying for a few years that investors will not be able to rely on conventional protections. In the COVID crash in March 2020, it was the rougher portfolio's unconventional protections, derivatives effectively, which saved the day when most conventional assets misfired. This time around in this sell-off, it's the same sort of playbook. Traditional safe havens have just not worked. The yen has been a disaster. Gold has declined, even though there's a war. Inflation-linked bonds have have not worked at all, uh, even though there's inflation, and we'll come back to that. And the ultimate safe haven of US government bonds haven't just not worked. They've actually been the center of the
0: problem. Markets are moving at such a rapid pace at the moment, and we're learning more about the trajectory of the inflationary journey um, with every day that goes past. So Duncan, what do we know at the end of this quarter that we didn't know at the beginning? So as always, it's good to go to Charlie Munger or Warren
1: Buffett for a clever quote about investing. And Charlie Munger once said that if you're not confused about what's going on, you just don't understand it. And I really think that sums up where we are today. We came into this year saying that it was path dependent, and it depended on how serious central bankers were about tackling inflation and tightening financial conditions. And six months on, it's pretty clear that they are serious. They've started to raise rates. They've promised to do a lot more between now and year end. The Bank of England thinks they'll take interest rates to 3% by the end of the year, the Fed to 3.25. We're only at one and a bit today. So that's a long way. But I think... An appropriate metaphor for all this is that it's a little bit like going on a diet. It's very easy to talk about it, to plan for it, to maybe buy a recipe book about it, but it is actually rather difficult to get up at five in the morning, go to the gym, eat healthily, and do it day after day until it works. But right now, central bankers are actually impressing me with their resolve Jerome Powell in the US is saying that he's going to act like Volcker in the 80s and raise interest rates to squeeze inflation out the system. But ultimately, we doubt that he has the political capital to do this. But for now, the multivariate experiment of raising interest rates and conducting quantitative tightening at the same time is underway. We know that markets don't like it. We've experienced that in the first six months of the year. But we are yet to experience the biting point for the economy or for inflation.
0: The consensus view now is pretty bearish across markets. So it's almost surprising that things haven't actually gone further. But I'm sensing, Duncan, from the way that you're talking about things that you do think that things could go further. And in fact, there may be shoes which are yet to drop. Yeah, I think from a market perspective we've seen
1: valuations come down because prices have fallen, but that assumes that earnings stay the same. Now earnings estimates still look quite optimistic to us. We would expect that if we have a recession that global earnings will fall by 10 to 15%, but currently forecasts are that earnings will grow by 8 or 9%. And to us, that just seems too rosy, given the current outlook and uncertainty.
0: What's the time frame for that, Duncan?
1: Uh, that's over the next 12 months. So that's one reason why we've not been rushing to buy the dip, uh, because I think people are only just starting to realise what is happening. Private market valuations, uh, Klarna was just in the press at the weekend with a valuation down 90% from its high, but they tend to react with a lag of 12 to 18 months. And I think we need to wait For this to all play out over a little bit more time. And just to to drill down a bit further, profit margins are at all-time highs, and they're forecast to go to higher highs. Now, how likely does that seem when debt service costs are going up, labour costs are going up, input costs such as energy are going up? You need an awful lot of pricing power as a business to pass that on and retain higher profit
0: margins. And it wouldn't be like rougher not to dig in a little bit more into the inflationary story. So um, we'll perhaps come on to that in in a few minutes time. But just on earnings, Duncan, I'd be interested to know what you're hearing from management and and from companies really at the coalface in this.
1: So as with everything, the devil is in the detail. and, And I sort of think the plural of anecdote is data. Now, we don't, own any of these companies, but I think the stories are are instructive. There's always winners and losers in any economic environment. But hearing from EasyJet that they're struggling to get staff, so what are they doing? They're removing seats from planes so that they can fly the planes with fewer cabin crew. The CEO of Marriott Hotels, Uh, perhaps counterintuitively, has said that the summer numbers look extraordinary. People are desperate to go back on holiday. Business travel is back at 90% of the pre-pandemic levels. And so from their perspective, it's all coming roaring back. In contrast, uh, Winnebago who make those big camper van RV things. They enjoyed a a vintage period during COVID as everyone explored their wanderlust in a safe environment. But they're finding it very difficult today because they sell a large, expensive discretionary item in a cost-of-living crisis. And let's be honest, those things probably get about
0: five miles to the gallon. Yeah, I mean, that is extraordinary and... You're right to say that the conflicting signals make it very difficult for investors to to get a read on things. And the crouch position feels like a sensible one at the moment. So one of the major detractors from Ruffer's portfolio performance over the past quarter was the index link gilts. Now, those linkers have fallen a long way, but overall, the portfolio performance remains robust, and these are a sizable position within the portfolio. So could you just elaborate a little bit on how you've managed to maintain robust performance amidst a large proportion of the portfolio um, suffering in the way that it has? The carnage in long-dated inflation-linked gilts just should not be
1: understated. The the 2073 index-linked bond, which is about a 2% position in most portfolios, is down 55% from its high in November. We've called these assets the crown jewels of the portfolio because it's our conviction that they will provide uh, the best protection against a world of financial repression, and that's an environment we think we'll be in for um, an extended period of time. That remains the case, But the sensitivity of those bonds to rising interest rates that we have warned about has now been felt. Thankfully, we had hedged a lot of the interest rate risk uh, here, and therefore we didn't feel the full pain of that fall. We had an offsetting option on on the other side. But it is humbling that something that we've prized uh, for so long has performed so poorly. But it also does say something about the effectiveness of our hedging, and of the way that we put the portfolio together, the portfolio construction, that the crown jewels can have in seven months. And the overall portfolio performance during that time is positive. So I think this episode illustrates a very important distinction that we have been laboring. But is worth reemphasizing that investing for inflation and investing for inflation volatility, which is what we are doing, are not the same thing. And conflating the two can be quite costly we think that Mr. Markets will make it very difficult for us to own these bonds. We'll have to crawl through fire for the gift of redemption that they will offer us in in the future. But from here, inflation-linked bonds are back to prices last seen before Brexit. And yet, in our assessment, the likelihood of the eventual inflationary denouement is much greater. You know, we're seeing it every day at the moment. So we believe that they're particularly asymmetric and attractive, and we've been
0: buying. Duncan, you've warned on the dangers of a wage price spiral, and that's really when inflation begins to bite. And and I know that sounds silly, because with inflation sort of in, in double digits across lots of measures at the moment, it really does feel like we're at biting point. But In the event of a wage price spiral, inflation presumably has further to go.
1: Yeah, so the traditional definition of inflation, or one traditional definition, is too much money chasing too few goods. And that's certainly what we experienced in the last couple of years. There was lots of money printed in response to COVID, there was accumulated lockdown savings, and they were chasing goods that were materially disrupted because of supply chains and so on. But... One way that Jonathan Ruffer has framed inflation is that it's a psychological phenomenon. Once people expect that prices will be higher tomorrow, then they spend their money today. And that turbocharges demand and only goes to reinforce the inflationary dynamics. My observation would be that I think that might be starting to happen price rises are becoming more normalised in society in a way that I've not seen before in in my lifetime.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: So, So for the last 10 or 15 years, the price of cinema tickets or going out for dinner has been pretty much constant. Now, they are higher. They're materially higher than before COVID. And most people are fine with that. Taxis, pubs, restaurants, holidays, airfares... People appreciate that many of these businesses really struggled during COVID. They're facing their own cost pressures of supply chains and labour and energy. And people think that they're entitled to try and make up for lost time and make money whilst the sun is shining. Similarly, I think people are pretty sympathetic to workers demanding higher wages in the current economy. I mean, that seems to be everyone except from the governor of the Bank of England, who isn't very happy about it. But if those workers get the wage rises, then that's more fuel for that inflationary fire. But as I said earlier, it's inflation volatility that's important to us. We don't think we're on a direct train to some inflationary bonfire. There will be ebbs and flows to this journey. and fascinatingly, in the last week or so, you don't need to believe me anymore, Christine Lagarde in a panel said that she doesn't think we're going back to an era of low inflation. I mean, I think that should have been front page news around the world.
0: Yeah, it feels almost confessional. (laughs) So Duncan, what should we be looking out for over the summer months? Is it just earnings or are there other clues to be revealed in the course of the coming weeks? Well, I said that we're in
1: crouch mode, and I think that's because we're waiting for a few paradoxes or dichotomies in the market uh, to be resolved. And I think they probably will be in a few months' time. One is that consumer confidence is at record lows due to cost of living. CEO confidence has fallen dramatically over the last five or six months. And yet, if you look at the hard data, things like household net worth, uh, consumers have never been so well off. They've never had more savings. Those two situations are unlikely to coexist for long. Zooming out a bit, I view that policymakers are walking a tightrope towards what they hope will be a soft landing on the other side. That's the dream scenario where they tame inflation without doing too much harm to the economy or the market. But I think that will take a remarkable combination of luck and skill. And frankly, I, I think their luck has probably run out. Because on on the one side of the tightrope, if they raise rates too much and tighten financial conditions too much, the economy will end up in recession. Or on the other side of the tightrope, if they do uh, not enough to stem inflationary momentum, then I think they risk the inflationary spiral, which we are arguably already in, becoming quite
0: disorderly. And at risk of being labelled pontificators, um, let's maybe move on, Duncan, to a little bit of an outlook for maybe the rest of the year, but more specifically just for Q3? How would you summarise your outlook?
1: In our opinion, you pay or appoint an investment manager to assess the economic or market landscape and the opportunity set therein, and then make a decision about how much risk to take. And we just do not think the current environment is a good one to be risking our clients' capital. So we have the portfolio in crouch mode As I said, um, we have avoided most of the slings and arrows of the vicissitudes of the market, but we have still taken a bit of a bruising. But I think the next few months, we see it as a period to survive. There is so much uncertainty around war, around central bank policy, inflation, the consequences of raising interest rates and corporate earnings, as we discussed. And this is all happening at the same time as the tide of easy money that has washed over the global economy in the last decade is finally receding. And it is our strong suspicion to come back to to Warren Buffett that when the tide goes out, some people will be found swimming naked. And as our chief investment officer, Henry Maxey, said in his his recent piece, winter is coming, uh, to quote Game of Thrones, uh, for liquidity, it's coming for narcissism, it's coming for crypto. It's coming for retail punting, and it's definitely coming for businesses that depend on any of these things. Now, I'm not as eloquent as Henry, but my take on it would be that there are times that you want to own a get-rich portfolio, and there are times that you want to own a stay-rich portfolio,
0: and this is definitely the latter. Crouch mode is the word of the day. Duncan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Ruffer Radio on the App Store, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of Ruffer LLP. They do not constitute as investment research or advice and may be subject to change. Ruffer LLP is regulated and authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK and is registered as an investment advisor with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training.